1 Kings chapter 3, and when you uh, reach there, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Kings chapter 3. said, Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day, after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. And we were alone, and there was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I arose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, Because her heart yearned for her son, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death, for she is his mother. And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And so King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elorith, Elorith, Elorith? And Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in commander, was in command of the army. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the offices. And Zabad, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. And Ahashar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Look over at verse 20. And Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, and they ate and drank and were happy. You may be seated. I'll keep reading from there. Sorry, I didn't communicate well with you, Travis. But 20... uh, yeah, 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, fat and fowl, for he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa and Gaza over the, all the kings of the west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan, even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. 
Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking, barley also, and straw for the horses, and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the peoples of the east, all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Kalkol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Just pray that you would... Just speak your word through your spirit in me, that you would open our hearts to understand and to receive your word, to know more of who you are and how we're to live in response to that. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a phrase that appears in a lot of books and movies, especially in the medieval time frame. And that phrase is, I give you my word. Something that knights and lords and ladies and kings and queens will use. And it creates just a little bit of tension in each story. Because it can either be worthless words or it can be a powerful oath. It creates a lot of tension because the main character often, you're just like, wow, if they would just go back on their word, everything would be great. They would be able to achieve all their goals. Life would be a lot simpler for them. And so what's stopping them from doing it? Doing that is just their word. Can you trust just words without collateral? And really what it comes down to, what gives any strength or any meaning to someone saying, I give you my word, is the history of that person. Have they broken their word before? A king who's lived his entire lifetime saying, I give you my word and is always delivered, is someone that you can take at his word. Someone that has said, I give you my word and hasn't done what they said they would do is someone you're probably not going to trust just at their word. But today, I want us to see and meditate on the fact that we get to trust the faithful God of eternity that has never broken his word. It's hard enough for us to keep our word week to week, let alone throughout an entire lifetime. But God of all eternity throughout all of history has always kept his word. We can trust him. Trust. So Nolan, last week he was talking about Solomon's dependence on God. Dependence was the word that came up over and over throughout that sermon. And trust is the other side of that dependence. Dependence leads to trust. Trust leads to dependence. These passages go together and that's important for us this morning. So up to this point in the book of Kings, um, we've seen a number of things happen. We have seen David, as he's growing weak, as he is getting close to dying, he, um, his son Adonijah, not Solomon, 
seeks to take the throne. David's advisors come together and they help David to see what's happening. And they help him to save the kingdom and give it to Solomon, who the, the rightful heir is. And after this, Solomon, he reigns and he executes both justice and mercy in the kingdom. The enemies of David, the enemies of his throne, he acts mercifully towards them. But when they abuse that mercy, when they disobey, when they act rebelliously, he enacts judgment on them. And then we saw last week in Nolan's sermon that Solomon, he he loves the Lord. But he's coming up to a high place to worship the Lord, not what he's supposed to be doing. But the Lord appears to him there because the Lord is is merciful and good and says, Solomon, ask what you want. And Solomon wisely asks for wisdom and discernment. And the Lord grants him that, but he also grants him honor and riches because he didn't ask for those. And he says, you'll have a long life if you continue in the statutes of David. And that brings us to where we are today, the, the end of chapter three, um, coming into chapter four. It's important for us to remember who is this book written to? This book is written to Israel especially, namely Judah, in exile in Babylon. And the way we've been summarizing it is they're asking two questions. How did we get here? And is there still hope? I think this passage today has very clear answers to those questions. So the first point, and really the main point of this whole sermon, what I want all of us to see in this passage is that we trust our faithful God who abundantly fulfills his promises. We can trust our faithful God who abundantly fulfills his promises. We worship and trust the God who always keeps his word. Why would we trust or depend on anyone or anything more? Why would we ever doubt the eternal God who has always kept his word? If you just read this passage once through, it can feel like a, a, just a general rundown of Solomon's kingdom, who's doing what in it, random details that why would this be what God wants us to see here? But the point of all these details and what I want us to see is that this passage is just promise fulfillment after promise fulfillment after promise fulfillment that God gives so that we can see his faithfulness, so we can know God does keep his word. God has been making covenant promises throughout all of Israel's history, and they're looking forward to those. But they haven't seen the fulfillment of them yet. Even they've entered the promised land, but they don't even have all of the promised land because of disobedience when they came in to, to conquer it by the Lord's power. But we're going to see the fulfillment of, of these things today. So God has made those covenant promises, and he's made promises to Solomon in the last chapter we just read. Promises of wisdom and discernment, honor and riches. We'll see those fulfilled today. And I'm convinced after reading this chapter and studying it, I think this is the highest concentration of promise fulfillment in the entire Bible apart from the life of Jesus. We can see God's faithfulness here if we look closely. And so to start... We need to get some context. And what's on the mind of the people of Israel? What are the covenant promises that we need to be thinking about? And so we're going to turn back to Genesis. And we're going to have these up on the the projector for us as well. 
just to keep in the back of our minds as we're reading through this chapter, as I'm going through this chapter again. So first in Genesis 15, verse 18, we're going to see a promise of land. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Then he goes on to talk about all the kingdoms that are in that land. But specifically, remember, the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. These are the borders of the promised land. And then going to Genesis 26, 4. Again, we can't go through all of these promises, but this, I think, is the best summary of all the promises for the Abrahamic line. This is given to Isaac. It's just a restatement of the same promises given to Abraham. And it says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So, Kendra, if you can just leave that verse up there while I'm kind of running through this passage, that would be great. And then jumping back to 1 Kings. In chapter 3, the promises that God gives to Abraham in verses 12 and 13. Behold, now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. So now I just want to run through this passage again, and I want us to see all of these promises getting played out. Why are these details here? Because they're promise fulfillment. And so the first place is starting in chapter 3, verse 16, the story of the two prostitutes. Just jumping to the end of the story with me in verse 28. This is what we were supposed to see is the point of the story. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. This can feel like a little bit of a strange story, but that's the point we're supposed to get from the story. We're not supposed to hyperanalyze every point and what's happening in the story, but the point is that from this story, all Israel is saying, whoa, like God's wisdom is on Solomon to do justice. A few key things to point out from the story is the fact, A, that it's two prostitutes, two people that it's surprising are actually able to come before the judgment seat of the king of Israel. Why are, why are they able to come? It's surprising that people that are so, um, so backwards, so looked down on, so looked down on by the whole society are actually able to come before the king and seek justice. Secondly, in this story, it's important that there are no other witnesses. It's one lady's word against the other. In the law of Israel, it is essential that there's witnesses for, for proof, for justice to be enacted, for any judgment to be given. There has to be proof. And in this story, there's, there's no proof. It's just one lady's word against another. So what is Solomon going to do in this impossible situation? And so he acts wisely to determine who's is the baby, he goes and sends for a sword and threatens the life of the child, drawing out the maternal instinct of the mom, saying, no, 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 do not kill the child. We do not, I don't want the child to be split. 
give the child to the other woman, it's better for the child to live. And the other woman in her jealousy to say, oh, no, that's fine. Like, as long as she doesn't have a child and I don't have a child, that's good. And in that, Solomon can see, okay, who is the mom? This is the mom. No, don't put the child to death. Give the child to his mother. Again, it can feel weird to us, but this story is so famous in Israel that everybody has heard of it. Everyone talks to each other about it, and everyone's like, the same application from it. Solomon has God's wisdom. God has given what he promised to Solomon. Even here, seeing honor in Solomon that he has throughout the land because of this judgment, because of the wisdom of God. Next, we see in 4 1, uh, 4 1 through 6, and 4 1 through 19, we see Solomon's officials and advisors. When Solomon asks God for wisdom in uh, chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. To govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? And so, yes, God gives Solomon wisdom to govern the land, but he also gives Solomon wisdom to not try to do everything by himself, but to rely on other God-trusting, God-dependent people. We're going to loop back to this point a little bit later, but there's wisdom in Solomon having these men as advisors. There's wisdom in Solomon entrusting duties to other people and not just doing everything himself. Solomon is wise. God is keeping his word. Jump with me to verse 20 of chapter 4. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. So here... Israel is is numbered as the sand by the sea. No one would undertake it to go and count every grain of sand by the sea. It's impossible. It's an unfathomable amount. Just like we saw in Genesis 26.4, where Israel will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. You can't count them. It's an unfathomable number. And God has kept his promise to Israel in making them numerous like this. And he hasn't just kept it, but he's kept it abundantly, like the sands on the seashore. In 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Those are the borders of the promised land. At long last, Israel has all of the promised land. God has kept his word and has given the land that he promised to Israel took a little longer than they expected, but God has been faithful. He kept his promise. Then it goes on in 22, and it talks about Solomon's food for him and his household and his friends, for his guests. And in this, we see there's, there's plentifulness in the amount of food, and there's variety in the, amount of, in, in the types of food, both with just the, the flour, the meal, the different kinds of meat that they have to choose from. And this shows that Solomon is, is wealthy, has riches. The kingdom is doing well, just like God promised he would do for Solomon in chapter 3, verse 13. Continues to talk about where he has dominion over, like God had promised. Judah and Israel living at peace, every man under his vine, under his fig tree, 
not really a direct promise fulfillment, but as Israel is pursuing and seeking the Lord, there's peace in the land. There's happiness. There's joy. God blesses the people as they are being faithful. In verse 26, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. I think we're supposed to see two things here. A, Solomon is wealthy. Horses and chariots were incredibly expensive, incredibly hard to come by, and he has a ton of them. The kingdom is doing well. But we're also supposed to see that Solomon is sinning in doing this because in the, in the law, the requirements given to the king specifically says kings will not and should not keep up for themselves many horses. So this is Solomon being wealthy, yes, but also not trusting God's law as good and right. And we'll loop back to that later as well. And then it goes on and talks about the officers supplying for the king's table, supplying the horses. Getting to verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. Again, clear promise fulfillment. God being faithful to his word of Solomon, giving him wisdom and discernment in massive measure. Again, using the image of sand on the seashore. He's not just giving him more than anyone else. He's not just giving him a lot. No, he's giving him an unfathomable amount like sand on the seashore in abundant measure. And so... Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the peoples of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So God promised he would be wiser than any other, and it shows here he's, he's wiser than those in the East, the kingdoms of the East known for their wisdom, wiser than the, the wisdom of Egypt, people that are known for their engineering, for their thinking, for their minds. He's wiser than Ethan and Heman. Each of those actually wrote a psalm, and it's the psalm that we wrote the, read this morning um, for the call to worship, Psalms 88 and 89. So these are men that are filled with the Spirit of God, that are even talking about messianic things, people that know the Lord, people that are blessed with the wisdom of God. But Solomon has more wisdom, just like God said he would. And Solomon also spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So he, he has wisdom even in, in arts and things like that. He's being able to speak wisdom and he's able to create music. And then it talks about him speaking of trees and of plants. It talks about him speaking of beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. Things that people, even now, take entire lifetimes to study even with Google, even with textbooks, even with all this other information. No, Solomon has knowledge about these things, and he can talk about them in detail and in depth. And then verse 34, And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And there's one part I missed also that's in uh, verse 31. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So the point is, ask 
anyone, anyone around, not just in Israel, but in the surrounding nations, who is the wisest? Everyone is going to say Solomon. Everyone knows it. Everyone sees it. And then in 34, peoples of all nations, not just the surrounding nations, they're hearing of the wisdom of Solomon, and they're coming from all over to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So here again is fulfillment of God promising Solomon honor, not just honor in Israel, not even just honor in the surrounding kingdoms, but honor throughout all of the world and people knowing his wisdom. And then again, the covenant promise. I think this is a, a partial fulfillment, not the, not the complete thing, but all the nations are, are coming in to hear God's wisdom in Solomon and they are being blessed by hearing his wisdom. And we see just a glimpse of the nations being blessed through Abraham's line. So the point is, in this passage, God is being faithful to every single one of these promises. He is doing what he said. And he's not just doing it in a lot. He's doing it like the sand on the seashore. He's doing it with abundance. He's giving his promises. He's giving the fulfillment of his word in abundance. This is the God that we get to trust and that we get to worship. There's infinite implications to this. Like Nolan talked about last week, we ought to live lives of dependence on the Lord. And we can do that with confidence because our infinite God is infinitely trustworthy. And so as Israel is living in this golden age where all these promises are being fulfilled, where they're seeing all these things come through Solomon, through God's blessing of the kingdom, I think it's natural that they are asking themselves, is this it? Have we arrived? Is this the kingdom that will last forever? Is this the peace that will last forever? Is Solomon the snake crusher, the serpent crusher that will cast evil out? Is he the one that's going to do what Israel had failed over and over and over to do in following the Lord? The answer is no. He's not the one. There's so many promises being fulfilled. There's such a glimpse of these things. But we know that Solomon, he doesn't crush the serpent. He succumbs to it. We'll see later in this book that he does fail. And we've already seen hints of it with the horses. We've seen hints of it with him marrying uh, Pharaoh's daughter. We've seen hints of it with him going up to the high places in chapter 3. No, this isn't it. We haven't arrived but God is still being faithful. And so the story of the entire Bible, right? Starting in Genesis, man walks with God, talks with God. Everything is good, perfect relationship. And man, they sin. They disobey God. And because of that, the relationship is broken. And they try to do everything they can to get back to God. They try to keep his law. They try to live rightly, but things just keep going downhill. Yeah, there's some ups and downs, but what everyone can see is that no, no man can live rightly. No man can fulfill the law, and no man doesn't deserve God's judgment. Is there still hope? And the hope comes in the form of promises all throughout the Bible. That there is a snake crusher coming. That there is promises for God's people, that there is a Messiah that's going to come and set all things right, a suffering servant who will live rightly before the Lord and restore us 
to him. And this is a theme that, that Israel can see back at this time as they're looking forward to these promises. Okay, God has always kept his word, so we know these things are going to happen. And we can look forward to them. But when and how? Even if we go to Hebrews 11, where it talks about the hall of faith, the pattern there, it talks about all the heroes of the Old Testament. And the pattern is they receive a promise from God and then they run towards it with everything that they have because they know that God always keeps his word. They know that it's true and they know that it's worth staking everything in their life on. And they run towards it despite there being opposition at every turn, there being trials and difficulties, even that those promises seem far off or impossible. They take God at his word and they trust him. And we see a really good picture of this in Romans 4, 18 through 22. Kendra, if you want to put that up for us. And this is just talking about the story of Abraham, kind of as it relates to trusting God's promises. This is an example that Israel has as they're reading this passage. And it's one that the New Testament wants us to think about. What do we do with God's faithfulness? What do we do with God always keeping his word? How do we think about that and how do we live in light of it? Let's follow the example of Abraham. Romans 4, 18 through 22. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham, he's given this promise of the nations being blessed through his descendants, but he doesn't have descendants. God, what what are you doing but that doesn't weaken his faith. He's, he doesn't think about the practical side of it, that he's 100 years old, unable to practically uh, produce offspring, that his wife has been barren all her life, and she's also too old to produce offspring. But even where it seems impossible, seems like something's been missed along the way. No, Abraham doesn't, he doesn't shrink back. He doesn't weaken in his faith. He actually rose in his faith at the end of verse 20 and he gives glory to God because he's fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He knew God always keeps his word and he's promised me this and so I can keep running forward towards it and knowing that he's going to do it. And it applies to us as well. Reading on in verse 23 and 20 uh, or 24. I'll start in 23. But for the word but the words it was counted to him we're not written for his sake alone, but for ours. Also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the story is Abraham doesn't lose faith as he's waiting for his offspring. And then the application is, and let me tell you about his offspring that did come and the offspring through which all the nations were blessed. That's Jesus. We come, we, we see the fulfillment 
of God's greatest promise is Jesus. Jesus, fully God, fully man, came down and lived a perfect life on the earth. Did what every man found that they could not do. Live without sin. Live rightly before the Lord. Live rightly in light of the law. They all deserve judgment and they deserve death. But Jesus didn't. And so on our behalf, he took that death. He took that punishment and he rose again. He was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. He bore God's wrath on our behalf so that we could be made right with God in a way that we could never do. He did. That is a promise that we also get to live in light of. That we remind ourselves of. That if we have repented and believed in Jesus, that we are restored and we have received the fulfillment of God's greatest promise of restoration to him, the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of Jesus. So as we see God's faithfulness in this passage, we can draw near to that. We can trust the Lord and we can remind ourselves all throughout the Bible. God has always kept his word all throughout history. God has always kept his word in the lives of each other. God has always kept his word and in our own lives and our own testimonies. God has always kept our word, his word. We need to remind ourselves of this because we are quick to forget. We're quick to, to weaken in faith, to not trust, especially when things get hard or when things seem far off or when things seem impossible. He saved us. He's given us his spirit. He's already shown so much faithfulness to us. There's no reason to doubt. The eternal God has always kept his word. And so with the rest of the sermon, there's, there's two more things I think that need to be talked about in this passage. One is kind of a sub point of trusting our faithful God who accomplishes his promises abundantly. And the other is a warning for us. So not only do we just do we trust God who always keeps his word, we can actually trust those who trust and depend on God. And we see that in Solomon's advisors. So coming back to 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We usually get worried about lists of names, but the cool thing about this list of names is we know who they are, and we should be excited about them. Solomon has wisdom in having trustworthy and God-fearing advisors and officials. If we have read First and Second Samuel, if we've read the first couple chapters of First Kings, we should be wooting and celebrating wooting. I don't know. Uh, we should have a lot of joy at these names. These are the heroes of David's reign. These are the heroes that put Solomon on the throne. This should be exciting for us. These names mean something. So I'm just going to run through these names real quick. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Zadok, the loyal priest to God, the loyal priest 
to David, who stood by David and Solomon in the midst of rebellion? His son. And so it's, it's both these people and their sons. But when it's talking about their sons, I think we're supposed to associate their sons with their fathers. Elihorath and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Shisha was David's secretary. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Jehoshaphat was also David's recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Benaiah was one of David's mighty men. He was over David's bodyguard. He also is the one that remained loyal to David and Solomon as Adonijah tried to take the throne in chapter 1. He's a good, loyal, God-fearing man. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Again, Zadok, this is the priest that was loyal to David, loyal to the Lord, loyal to David and Solomon. Abiathar is actually the priest that was exiled. And so there's kind of a lot going on here. I think in general, the principle is he's still a priest. He's just not really serving as the priest. There would be a lot there if we wanted to go into that. Uh, I don't think we really have time for that this morning. Verse 5, Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabad, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Nathan, the loyal prophet to David, who spoke God's word over and over and over again in the kingdom. Nathan, who when Adonijah rose up to rebel, got um, Bathsheba and, and made a plan to tell David, remained loyal to David and to Solomon, even when things were getting a little scary. His sons are serving, serving with Solomon. And then Ahishar was in charge of the palace, and Adoniram, the son of Abdo, was in charge of the forced labor. But you get the idea here. These are David's loyal people. These are people that love the Lord, trust him, and are dependent on him. And now Solomon gets the blessing of getting to trust and depend on these men. And it's especially noteworthy. This isn't just me drawing this out of the text. Because if you look at the next two kings, the king of, that follows Solomon at his death and the king that comes over Israel, counselors are an essential part of both of those stories. So Solomon dies and Rehoboam uh, becomes king, Solomon's son. And the people come to him and they, they want him to, to tell them things. And he seeks the counsel of the counselors of his father and they give him good advice. And then he seeks the counsel of his peers. And it's clear that they give him horrible advice. But he takes the bad counsel, and as a result, the whole kingdom is split apart. Jeroboam, the king of Israel that comes from the split, he sees, oh no, like people are just going to keep going down to Jerusalem to worship as they're supposed to do, and I'm not going to have any power. The kingdom is just going to be restored. So he takes counsel, is what it says. And that counsel, this is all in chapter 12, by the way. And that counsel tells him, Okay, just make two golden calves, have two, set up two places of worship, two places of idolatry, and then tell the people to worship there. And this act is the infamous evil that every other king of Israel is compared to throughout the rest of the reign and falls into, is the wickedness, the, the folly of Jeroboam, the evil that he did. And so who you're surrounding yourself with, who your advisors are, is important. Trust those that trust and depend on God. Solomon has great people around him, and we should be celebrating that. I talked about earlier, it's also just a fulfillment of Solomon's dependence prayer. 
Um, how can I govern this your great people? Yes, he received wisdom, but in that wisdom, it wasn't him thinking he's not so wise he can handle everything, but he's so wise that he knows he needs to entrust others. Not to, not to just do it alone. No matter how much wisdom, no matter how much help God has given him, sometimes the people around us are the help that God is giving us. And Solomon is wise enough to see that. And there's a lot of application just for us as we live in community, as a church, just thinking about these things. And because of our trusting dependence on God and his promises, we can vulnerably and humbly trust other God trusters. Trusting can be hard regardless of the who. It's not easy to trust each other. But it's an essential part of living in community, living in unity with one another. When Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage, one of the statements in there is love, trust. We're called to love. That's an essential call for us as believers. And an essential part of love is trusting one another. If we're not trusting one another, then we're not loving. And if we're not loving, we're not living rightly in community with one another as a church. Are we trusting one another? Do we assume the best in each other? Do we trust each other to be living out their gifts? Do we assume the worst in each other? Or even do we rightly know the worst in each other because we're confessing sin to one another? This isn't a reason we trust each other so we don't call out potential sin or call out things when we see them. But in response to our trust in God, we can actually trust the Spirit in each other. Do you surround yourself with wise counsel? Do you surround yourself with other people that are trusting and depending on God? Invite people into your life to call out sin. Be known. Be vulnerable. And we can do that because we trust God first and foremost. And we can trust those that also trust God. Do you reflect God's character as a person who always keeps their word? Are you trustworthy? Even for for children, do you honor your parents by entrusting them, by seeking counsel with them, by confiding in them, by seeking wisdom from them? They've been given to you as your counselors, as your parents, as your authority. Lean into that. Rely on them. Don't try to do it by yourself. We don't live Christian lives as individuals. We don't come as a ch- into the church just as individuals, but we are one body growing up into a mature man together. We have to trust and depend on each other for that. We don't do it alone. So we trust and depend on our faithful God who fulfills his promises with abundance. We can trust and depend on other God-trusting people And finally, a warning. Distrust of our faithful God is disastrous. Though Solomon is generally trusting and depending on God, he also intentionally ignores parts of God's law. And this at least in part shows that Solomon isn't trusting God and his law in its entirety. There's areas that he is ignoring. And we're going to see that... um, We see that in our text today through Solomon amassing horses for himself. We also need to go back to chapter 3 
where he's made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying his daughter. And we see that in Solomon going up to the high places, yes, to worship God, but not in the way that God has prescribed. Solomon has areas of his life that he's not fully trusting the Lord in. And these areas become disastrous for him. So the first, 1 Kings 3, 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. And so here, there's a specific command. And that command is in Exodus 34, not to marry the foreign woman because they will lead you into idolatry. They will make you worship false gods. Even the alliance with Pharaoh, it does show. So Israel was dependent on Egypt. Israel was under Egypt, but now they're actually on equal footing. So again, you're seeing like little bits of what's happening in the kingdom, that they're on good footing. They're equals with mighty Egypt, but making alliances is something that is, is pretty clearly looked down on throughout the Old Testament. Solomon, he goes up to the high places. He gives so many sacrifices to God, but he's not doing it in the way God called him to and has told Israel to, not at the prescribed altar, not at the ark. It's the classic giving sacrifice instead of obedience and thinking that will please the Lord. No, God desires obedience over sacrifice. And a key verse here is in 1 Kings 3, 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So who is Solomon? What do we know him as? We know him as a man who loves the Lord, who is dependent on God, who trusts God. But he's ignoring God's law in these areas. And I think that's key. I think we're still supposed to think about Solomon as a good God-loving, God-fearing, God-trusting, God-dependent man in these passages. But these areas where he's not trusting God's law is good are showing and foreshadowing that there's going to be a problem in the future and that he might not remain that way. We come over to the horses in 1 Kings 4, 26, talking about the, the many, many horses that Solomon has amassed for himself. That is specifically against what the the law for the kings is in Deuteronomy 17. Don't amass many horses for yourself. And the why of that is so that you're not trusting and depending on these horses for protection, for security, but you're trusting in the Lord. I think there's two, two kind of options here of how Solomon is thinking through this. The kingdom is at peace, and maybe he's just collecting horses for the sake of collecting horses not worried about the security side of it, thinking, okay, the law is written for this reason. That doesn't apply to me. Like, I'm not going to fall into that. So I can, I can do these things. Even maybe thinking that with Pharaoh's daughter. I'm not supposed to marry foreigners because they're going to draw me into idolatry, but I'm not going to fall into that, so it's okay for me. Or Solomon isn't trusting in God. He's trusting in horses and chariots for God's protection. There's different options here, but all of them show lack of trust. 
And we know, as we're going to find out as we keep preaching through this book, that these areas that Solomon is ignoring, that he isn't fully trusting God, they fester and they grow until it's just full out idolatry. He doesn't deal with them here. And so they grow until they they make his heart callous towards the Lord. And they just change who he is. We need to root out sin in its entirety from the very start. In Nehemiah, it actually refers back to Solomon. When Israel is returned from exile, when they are um, yeah, back in the land, they start to marry foreign women again. And Nehemiah finds out about it. And he, he comes to them, and he comes to them very, um, very strongly, as we'll see. And he reminds them about Solomon. I think this is, this is helpful for us. Nehemiah 13, 25 through 27. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not King Solomon of Israel sin on account of such woman? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign woman made even him to sin. These people are coming back into the land. They're marrying foreign women. They're being carried out into idolatry. And Nehemiah is saying, what are you doing? Think about Solomon. If anyone was going to be able to overcome the sin that comes from this, it would have been Solomon. Loved by God. He loved God. He had all of God's wisdom. He had everything going for him. He was the king, wiser than any other king in the land. And still he fell into sin because he didn't deal with it and he didn't run from it. Why in the world... Do you think that you are going to succeed where Solomon failed? You are fools. I think that applies to us too. Don't play with sin. Root it out completely. Trust that God's way is good even where we don't understand the why. Or we think that we can overcome the why. No, we can't. Destroy sin. Are there areas that you are ignoring? That you are dabbling with sin? Or even just playing close to a line? Stop. Put it to death. Sin always lies. It never gives what it promises. But God always keeps his word. God always gives what he promises. Don't doubt that God is good, that God knows what is best for you, that God satisfies. Trust him. Trust that he knows what is best. Flee from sin. Don't let it fester and grow. Don't let it make you grow callous and distant from the Lord. Once saved, always saved, yes. But... We all have experienced the effects of sin on us, how it makes us callous spiritually to God, how it affects us just practically in our lives. 
Put sin to death from the very beginning. Don't let it sit and fester and grow like Solomon did. So in summary, we're to trust our faithful God who abundantly fulfills his promises. The whole point of this passage, God is faithful. You can trust him. Israel in exile. Why are we here? Is there still hope? Yes, because God is faithful and you can trust him. There's still promises that you get to look forward to. Still a king that will reign on David's throne forever. Still a Messiah to come. And even at the end of 2 Kings showing David's line is still alive. There is still hope. God will keep his word. And you're here because God kept his promises of blessings and curses that he gave in the law because of your disobedience. God always keeps his word. Secondly, trust those who trust and depend on our faithful God. Solomon surrounds himself with good, God-fearing people, and he relies on them, and rightfully so. We need to trust and depend on each other as we see each other trusting and depending on God. And finally, the warning trust of our faithful God is disastrous. Distrust of our faithful God is disastrous. As we continue through this series in the book of Kings, you're going to see failure after failure after failure after failure to trust and depend on God. The kings, they fail. But still, God is gracious and faithful. We need to take this truth with us throughout the rest of the book. God's faithful in the good times and he's faithful in the bad. He keeps his promises. There's still hope. Our faithful God has promised that our sins are wiped clean through faith in Jesus. He has promised that those who repent and believe will dwell with him in unveiled glory for eternity with our brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Run forward to these promises because they're as good as done because God always keeps his word. We know that history is headed there. To those here today who are trusting the Lord and running forward like Abraham towards the promises of the Lord, press on. Don't grow weary. Even if the promises feel far off, even if the promises feel impossible, be like Abraham and allow your faith even to grow in those circumstances and give glory to God like Abraham did. Take heart. As Romans 13 says, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. God's promises are nearer to us now than when we first believed. Press on. Continue to remind yourself of the faithfulness of the Lord, and we stand on a solid rock. To the believers struggling to trust, look back on the promises of God and his faithfulness throughout all of history, throughout all of the Bible. God is faithfulness. He gives definition to the very term. We have accounts of his faithfulness in the Bible. We have accounts of his faithfulness in each other's stories, and we know his faithfulness through our own lives. Remind yourself of those things. Don't forget. He's given us the spirit. He's given us undeserved grace and salvation. Remind yourselves that God is faithful. Remind each other that God is faithful. And finally, to the unbeliever, who will you trust? The eternal one who created you and has always kept his word, has promised salvation and adoption to any who would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Are you going to trust the one whose word has proven true throughout all of history, throughout all of eternity? Or are you going to trust yourself? Are you going to trust the words of some other person without the track record of our eternal God? Repent and believe in Jesus. His words are trustworthy and true. He is faithful. We can live lives of trust and dependence on the Lord because our infinite God is infinitely trustworthy. Dear God, we thank you that you are faithfulness. That just by the very character, by who you are, we know that you always will keep your word, that your promises are as good as done, that we can run forward to, towards them with confidence like Abraham, no matter what our circumstances are. Lord, give us faith. Give us trust in you. Help us to depend on you. Help us to be reminded just of who you are and what you have done. Remind us just of the hope that we have, of the things that we run forward to, because you fulfill your promises. God, we thank you that we get to see your promises just in this golden age of Israel, with Solomon as king. I just pray that we would even just see him throughout our day today, that we would have eyes to see your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us.